2: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Cheebaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. In 2016, an estimated 1.7 million new cases of cancer will be diagnosed in the United States. But less than a third of all cancer clinical trials meet their recruitment goals, and only 2 to 3 percent of adults participate in a clinical trial. Cancer clinical trials do provide patients with access to new therapies. When a patient participates in a clinical trial, they're helping to move cancer treatment forward. And provide hope for the future of cancer care. On this episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, as part of our series on clinical trials, we will be discussing barriers to participation in clinical trials and how we can overcome these barriers to create new treatments that can lead to a cure. Joining us to talk about what we can do to increase participation are two of the nation's uh, top experts from the National Cancer Institute who are dedicated to fighting for better cancer treatments. Our first guest today is Dr. Ellen Beckjord. During her time at the National Cancer Institute's Cancer Prevention Fellowship Program, Dr. Bechtort received a master's in public health, focused on epidemiology and biostatistics, completed postdoctoral research in the health communication and informatics research branch within the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences. Currently, Dr. Bechtort is the director of the Population Health Program Design and Engagement Optimization with UPMC Health Plan, where she focuses on behavioral informatics, population health, and use of mobile technology to promote health, wellness, and health behavior change. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beck Thank you. Also joining us today is Dr. Brad Hesse. Dr. Hesse is the Chief of the National Cancer Institute's Health Communication and Informatics Research Branch. Dr. Hesse was recruited to the National Cancer Institute in 2003 and has since been focusing his energies on bringing the power of evidence-based health communication to focus on the problem of eliminating cancer-related death. Currently, Dr. Hesse is working with the President's Cancer Panel on their report on Connected Health and Cancer. When completed, the report should provide direction to the President of the United States for how to bridge the gaps experienced by cancer patients and survivors. Thank you for joining, Dr. Hesse.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Well, and let's jump right in, Dr. Hesse. I'm going to start with you. And, you know, for our, our kind of basic listeners joining us today who maybe don't, don't know what a clinical trial is, can you really explain to our listeners what is a clinical trial?
3: Sure. I think the best way to think about it is that clinical trials are research studies, that involves people. Uh, and what that means is that they end up being sort of the final product of research that's done beginning in the laboratory where we're looking at the characteristics of what might be a treatment substance of some sort. And then we see how effective it might be on isolated cancer cells. We then take that into an animal model. We get to a point where we think this could really be something for us. It could help us uh, against a particular kind of cancer in a clinical context, but we need to find out what really does happen in that clinical context. And as we move into the clinical context and we get it ready uh, to learn to see if this is as good as anything we've got right now or much better, and our hope is that it's going to be much better, we rely on the participation of people who uh, can help us in that research project and ser- sort of serve as participants in that and, and partners in that uh, to see if if this is really going to be a treatment that's going to work and we can generalize.
2: And so is, has every medicine that we see on the market today, has that gone through a clinical trial?
3: Yeah, and that's an important point, especially if it's going to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. It's got to go through this process. This is the final stage in order for anyone else to take advantage of these.
2: And Dr. Hesse, can you just talk a little bit about Really, how the clinical trials work in terms of the, the sort of the different just quickly through the phases of of the trials, um, just so we can get our heads around those sort of steps there.
3: yeah, we like to talk about an initial phase, which we talk about as the phase one trial where we're uh, setting the the efficacy of the uh, treatment. And that means we need to know if it's having any kind of effect in the direction that we think it is, uh, in small dosages anyway. Uh, and, and once we say we think we have it has an effect within a physiologic system, our next question is to see how effective it is within a larger sort of system, and that's a phase two trial. Right. And for effectiveness, we want to see within the context of a real treatment regimen, how is it participating, how is it re- improving quality of life and reducing mortality and having an impact on, on the cancer that we're working on. And then we have, uh, at that stage, we go into a big safety trial. We expand the numbers. We know it's working. It's efficacious. We know it's effective within a clinical treatment. We take it into a phase three trial. And this is where we're hammering out all the kinks. We want to be sure we know there are no side effects, no uh, complications with other medications, that kind of thing, before it gets rolled out uh, to the entire public.
2: Got it, got it. Dr. Beckter, let me bring you into the, into the conversation. Can you explain how a patient becomes part of a clinical trial? What does that process look like?
4: Sure, absolutely. So clinical trials always have eligibility criteria that can be related to the nature of the disease a person has. They can be related to um, other factors associated with the person, like their age or their gender. There are lots of things that go into the eligibility criteria, meaning are you someone who is eligible to be a part of this trial? And sometimes there are even geographic restrictions. There are some types of trials that people can participate in, even if the trial is centralized in a university or a healthcare facility that isn't where they live, but sometimes due to the nature of the trial, which may involve the necessitation of in-person visits and the like, you need to live near where the trial is being conducted. That said, I think you're beginning to point to one of the barriers, so the... um, the National Institutes of Health and the government provide a wonderful resource, clinicaltrials.gov, where you can search for clinical trials related to any disease and filter that search by various parameters like geography to find clinical trials that are available for you. And it's also often the case that an individual's healthcare provider will introduce them to a trial that they're aware of that might be applicable to their particular disease. And so those are probably, you know, there are ways that individuals can search themselves for clinical trials, but a lot mm-hmm. of the time that information is brokered through the healthcare system. And then there are even companies or specific initiatives that have, um, and, and there are several of these, and some of them have, have been funded by, um, by the National Cancer Institute in particular through Small Business Innovation Research Grants, designed to help people find trials that may be applicable to them because that information is of very high value and we're um, learning more and more that consumers need additional support to navigate that information environment and find the trials that might be applicable to them.
2: Mhm mhm. So so Dr. Becker are are there clinical trials available for all types of cancer all stages of cancer?
4: I can't say with 100% certainty that that's the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is very broad coverage. There are even trials that are focused exclusively on cancer prevention. So some trials Mm -hmm. are only, you know, you're only eligible for them if you do not yet have cancer, but may be at increased risk for it. There are, um, you know, many, many, many clinical trials that are that are ongoing, and uh, they certainly are not only focused on types of cancer that are either very prevalent or very rare. They're certainly not all focused on, you know, individuals with very advanced cancer. There is, you know, most likely, uh, and just given the volume of trials, I, I'm not someone who knows sort of what all of them cover, but I wouldn't be surprised that if the answer to your question wasn't, yes, indeed, there are trials that cover, you know, all mm-hmm. different types of cancer, all different stages of disease and, you know, all sort of different um, ages and, and, and both for men and women.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to get to a little later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the barriers to participating in clinical trials, and we're going to talk about some of the myths. But um, Dr. Bechtard, it's my understanding that there is a pretty wide gap between the number of patients, cancer patients, who do participate in a trial versus the, the, the number of percentage of patients who would qualify to participate in a trial.
4: Yes, that is true.
2: Great. Okay. And we're going to break that down uh, a little bit as we dive deeper into the show. Dr. Hesse, can you tell us about the, um, uh, the benefits of participating in a cancer clinical trial? I imagine there are benefits for patients, uh, benefits for physicians and scientists, and frankly, benefits for the cancer community at large.
3: Sure. Let's start with the patient's perspective, because this is a question of they're having a conversation with their physician and they're considering a clinical trial. They might want to ask, well, what am I going to get at it personally first? And then what can I give back to the larger communities, maybe second and third? And uh, one thing to recognize is that a clinical trial will offer high-quality cancer care. So the way a trial is executed, the patient is given the best standard of care possible. Uh, Then they're given, uh, some some group of people will be given the experimental approach, and the experimental approach we hope might even be better. So they're at least going to get the best standard of care possible, and maybe something that's better. If in fact, and this is a second benefit, the treatment is proven to work during the trial and they're receiving it. Uh, they're allowed to be among the first to benefit from that, and they will continue on in most cases uh, with that medication or that treatment regimen. Mm-hmm. Uh, another advantage, I think, from a patient's perspective is that uh, we're confronted as patients often with a lot of treatment choices and that includes clinical trials, what's important, I think, at that stage is to really take an active role in that decision-making process, and so knowing what kinds of opportunities and choices are out there for clinical trials helps make a more informed decision, I think, with the person and the people that are surrounding them and caring for them. The doctor, of course, is the next one to care for them, uh, and the, the, the hospital itself, So the hospital is looking for the best treatment it can find possible for its patients, and the doctor is looking for the best treatments it can find possible for his patients, her patients. And that's a benefit that the physician gets out of this, is that they're going to be at that cutting edge for what uh, could be the next standard of care, uh, Mm -hmm. and they're giving that to their patients right away. Researchers, of course, researchers can only move forward into understanding how these substances work within Real physiologic systems that they're using people and cooperating with people to understand that. So this is the only way science is going to go forward, and that's that's how the community finally takes advantage of it and advances. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. We've uh, we've got just a minute till our uh, till our first break here, Dr. Hesse. But just quickly, I've also heard patients say that um, that they derive sort of an existential benefit from participating in trials because of the sort of altruistic uh, motivation in, in that. You know obviously their hope is that this trial is going to help them and going to help them get get cured or keep the disease at bay, but they also feel like they are participating in the science. they are participating in perhaps bringing better care to future patients. have you Have you sort of heard that that piece of the discussion?
3: Absolutely, and I, I think we're going to be able to talk about this a little bit later in our conversation, but we've even, coined a term of data altruism where patients are saying, look, we want to be part of this scientific process. We want to give our data so that others can benefit from that. And we hear that a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna uh, take a quick break here on frankly speaking about cancer. Don't go away. We're talking about increasing enrollment in cancer uh, in cancer clinical trials and, and as you've heard us sort of start to go down this road, there are there's a lot of potential for patients to participate uh, in clinical trials. There's a lot of benefit to that. And frankly, there are a lot of myths that surround participation in trials. We're going to take a little bit of time on the show today to kind of bust some of those myths and really get the get the truth out there and the important facts out there about cancer clinical trials and how participating in trials can benefit the patient and benefit the science uh, and, and society uh, as a whole. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim and We're talking about clinical trials today. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
6: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help
3: support from cancer survivors links to research and clinical trials
6: help with finances and access to care all behind you at breakaway from cancer created by amgen to empower cancer patients the cancer support community is proud to be a partner of breakaway from cancer people living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how during National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support MealTrain sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1000 new breast cancer specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt. And enter the code Magnolia B,
5: or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org.
2: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today's show is sponsored in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, NovoCure, and Taiho Oncology. We're talking with Dr. Ellen Beckjord and Dr. Bradford Hesse about the vital importance of cancer clinical trials and what we can do to increase enrollment in trials, which can lead to discovering better and more effective cancer treatments and and cures. Um, I want to talk for a minute or two and ask both of you, about some of the common myths that surround uh, cancer clinical trials. Dr. Hesse, I'll start with you. I know that one of the, um, one of the common myths that we hear from patients all the time is, uh, I don't want to get the placebo. Um, can you talk about placebo, particularly in the context of, maybe explain what placebo is, and then talk about it in the context of cancer clinical trials.
3: Sure. So the way that we used to do uh, research, kind of in the early days when we had uh, pills, is that we would uh, come up with an ineffective comparison group, a control group, and uh, usually that was a sugar pill, and that was referred to as a placebo. And so this was happening 40, 50 years ago, actually, before the institutional review boards came online in big way, and said, uh, "Wait a minute, uh, yeah, I understand you're going to get a big effect by comparing your." Particular uh, medication with a sugar pill, but uh, there are already other medications that might be existing. You can't do that anymore with your patients. If you're going to be doing a clinical study, you've got to be sure that they have the best treatment available now, and you can't give them a placebo. So uh, it's, it's a myth entirely, and I'm glad we're myth busting that people would get a placebo. They're going to get the best treatment available currently, and we're hoping that the experimental drug will be even better.
2: Okay, and I think that's a I think that's a critical one because I think that folks a lot of folks tell us they know they they know what a clinical trial is, but um, I, I, you know what, when we drill down we actually really don't they really don't know because they don't understand that you're not going to get a placebo in a cancer treatment trial and that's a critical point for us to drive home I think on the show today um, Dr. Beckjord some other myths that we hear and maybe you can clarify for us a lot of folks say um, uh, well, you only go on a clinical trial as a last-ditch effort
4: when everything else has failed. True or false? False. The um, the the idea that you know clinical trials should only be used as the last resort is is absolutely a myth. There, I, I think that comes from the idea that one of the you know, treatment potentials in a clinical trial is, you know, quote-unquote experimental, but as, as Dr. Hesse mentioned, you know, this would be a treatment that is known to be as good and there is reason to believe potentially better than the standard of care. And so it is certainly the case that it's absolutely appropriate to enroll in a clinical trial if you meet eligibility criteria and the rest of the parameters of the trial are applicable to you um, at any point in your treatment, including um, when you're being treated with curative intent.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So again, I think another important point to drive home uh, with our listeners. There are trials available at all different stages of disease and it's a question as you're diagnosed with cancer, you should ask your doctor, might there be a trial that's right for me that's available to me um, for all of the reasons that, that you just mentioned. Um, just, a t- just a couple more, Dr. Hesse, that I'll throw out. Uh, we hear patients say that um, they feel like, I don't want to go in a trial because I'm going to be treated poorly. I'm going to be treated like a guinea pig or a, or, or, or a lab rat. What do we know about the experience of patients in trials? The,
3: so we understand that because Trials are very controlled, and they're going to be comparing against the very best care available currently. That uh, it's the exact opposite. Rather than being treated with disrespect or as a lab rat or with substandard care, in fact, they're going to be treated quite well, and they're going to be treated with the best possible care available. And they're going to be doing it in a way that uh, we know is has high quality.
2: So, Dr. Hesse, let me ask you. Let's let's move into what we know about sort of you know enrolling in trials, engagement. Uh, uh, in, in trials. We know that there's a big gap between patients uh, who do enroll in a trial versus patients who might be eligible to enroll in a trial. The numbers I hear, and you correct me if, if we're, we're off the mark here, about 3 to 4% of adult cancer patients participate in clinical trials. Data shows that potentially 25 to 30% or more of, ca- of adult cancer patients would qualify to participate in a clinical trial. Why, why is enrollment lacking? What, what, what explains this gap?
3: Well, there are, there are a few reasons that we've been studying. There's a wonderful little paper. It's available at the website of Memorial Sloan Kettering. I just took a peek at it, as a matter of fact. And they said that here are the concerns that uh, they hear the most as, as Sloan Kettering. They said, one, people do worry a little bit about side effects and safety, uh, justifiably. And so one thing to recognize, and I'll say it right now, is that every trial has, every trial has a, a, data, a data safety board and uh, very strict provisions to protect the, sa- the safety of every participant in a trial. Uh, there are also some concerns about insurance, and I might mention that that's also a bit of a myth because uh, there, is, there is federal and state legislation that requires insurance companies cover many of these trials. Uh, we hear about inconvenience of trial locations. Sometimes it's just a little bit too far away, and people have a struggle to go at, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, possible solutions to that. That's a, I understand that's a legitimate concern. Oh. Uh, and then uh, maybe some skepticism from um, people's part, just lack of awareness, some of the myths that we talked about earlier on, and feeling like a guinea pig that you were kind of talking about. Uh, those can be obstacles that we can remove with just better awareness and more talking about it, like you're doing on this show right now.
2: Yeah, and and so how for, to understand in the in this sort of research context, how is this problem, how is this gap impacting the research pr- uh, process and our progress? towards finding more effective treatments and, and, and potentially even a cure, because I've, I've also read that less than one-third of all cancer clinical trials actually meet their recruitment goal- goals. I mean, that's a, that's a dismal picture when we're, in, when we're in this environment of sort of better treatments, better technologies to sort of advance, the, you know, advance the, the, uh, the treatments and, and advance towards a cure. We're st- we still seem to be facing this gap. It must be having a huge impact on the, re- on the research.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right, and that's the big paradox, I think, is we're right at a time now where where we've accumulated enough technical knowledge, enough biomedical knowledge, that we can move forward very quickly and and advance very quickly, but the the limiting step, I think, has to do with participation in the research process in order for us to move forward. So we really do need to figure out, as a community, on how to address that problem and get greater participation throughout the community, so that we can move science forward more quickly and i think you mentioned it earlier on that there's not a treatment out there that hasn't been through a clinical trial so we're mm-hmm. going to have a long queue if we don't start participating
2: okay. mhm mhm dr Pector, let me let me ask you this there's a lot of conversation you know in the healthcare world today about sort of big data and about sharing data and, uh, you know, sort of other technologies that are being employed to kind of close the research gap. Just help us understand sort of as, you know, as lay people, as consumers, what are we talking about here? What's the data? What are the technologies that could help close this gap and move us uh, to better treatments and potentially towards cures? So with
4: respect to... Big data in particular and um, ideas around data sharing those are those are two uh and sometimes related but also also different ideas um I'll address data sharing first i think um mm-hmm. you know the idea that if if two different institutions are conducting, say, a similar trial, perhaps testing two different agents or two different treatment approaches that, you know, wouldn't it, to your point earlier about the lack of participation in trials and sort of our low, relatively low numbers numbers of people participating and them being a hindrance to the progress of research, you know, Another strategy, in addition to getting more people to enroll in trials, is to increasing the degree to which we can learn from ongoing studies by combining um, data across institutions or organizations who are studying comparable things in the service of advancing, uh, building more evidence more quickly. And there are some regulations around data sharing and uh, and you know that that under certain circumstances when you 've been received a grant from the federal government of a certain amount that you know sh- sharing your data or agreements to um, to share your data or your findings uh, are are part of stipulations of receiving that money and so there's definitely been a push around data sharing it requires a certain degree of data standardization because you know it's hard to combine apples and oranges, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you're able to coordinate across a number of efforts such that you're collecting data in the same way so that after the study is over or during the study, those data can be combined in the service of amplifying uh, how what you can learn and how quickly you can learn it, that's a real benefit of data sharing. Big data uh, is a term that is used to refer to a lot of different kinds of of data, um, oftentimes genetic data or genomic data. So, these are, you know, where we have very large data sets that include, you know, a a very large number of of variables or, um, and Brad uh, can probably speak to this better than I can, so I'm going to stop in a moment and let him take over, but, you know, large volumes of data, um, usually a lot of data on a lot of individuals, sometimes collected in a standardized way, but we also see the emergence of quote-unquote big data being gathered um, through things like uh, sensors that people are wearing, which collect a lot of intensive longitudinal data or a lot of data on one person over a relatively long period of time. And, And these data are being used, there are new analytical methods that we're needing to apply to these data. They are kind of pushing the boundaries on data sharing, but there's certainly a lot of reason to believe that these new types of data and the analytical techniques that are applied to them are another way that we are going to be able to advance and expedite what we can learn about uh, cancer treatment, sometimes in the context of clinical trials, but also sometimes in the context of just very basic research. But Brad, I don't know if you'd like to add to that. Yeah, we've got
2: about a minute until our our next break here, but please, Dr. Hesse,
4: jump in.
3: Uh, So you mentioned earlier on that I had worked on a report for the President's Cancer Panel. So this is a report that goes to the President of the United States. It's entitled Connected Health. And it makes the point that Ellen is bringing up right now, that one way of accelerating our progress is by increasing the parallelism at which we collect data from a lot of patients at the same time by using mobile technologies and, and being more preemptive in some of our trials so that we try early on in the process and we get uh, uh, biochemical assays using a, like a spit thermometer, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, by doing that, we can, uh, we can move more quickly, I think, toward discovering cure uh, than we could 10, 15 years ago. So it's in this new area of connecting up our data streams that we're going to get more efficiency out of the trials that we have.
2: Great, great, excellent. Great, uh, great, great insight on that. And I think it's important for. Uh, for us to be having this conversation about the data piece, uh, uh, you know, as well as some of the frontline questions that patients are being faced with around clinical trial uh, enrollment. And I'm confident that our listeners are really uh, uh, gaining a lot of good insight from the conversation. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about engagement in, cl- in cancer clinical trials with two experts, Dr. Ellen Beck-Jordan, Dr. Bradford Hesse. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
6: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help.
3: Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials.
6: Help with finances and access to care. All behind you Break Breakaway from Cancer created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
3: Hi. I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphitech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphitech and its parent company, AZI, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
2: We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, from the Cancer Support Community. Our show today is sponsored in part by Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono Inc., and the uh, Takeda Oncology Company, on this episode, we are discussing barriers to cancer, clinical trial enrollment, and how we can overcome these barriers. We're joined by Dr. Ellen Beckjord and Dr. Bradford Hesse. In our last segment, we discussed some of the challenges facing recruitment Uh, For clinical trials, I just want to pivot a a little bit and talk about what is being done to reverse the trend of of uh, of low enrollment. Um, Dr. Beckert, I want to start with you. Um, I I want to just drill down a little bit more on this idea of patient perception, uh, uh, you know, of clinical trials, and how does perception impact enrollment, and what can we do to to change? patient perception we talked a little bit about the myths and and you know fine if we reiterate we may have folks just joining us now reiterate that uh some patients think you're going to get a placebo in a cancer treatment trial which you uh are not patients think you're maybe going to be treated poorly like a guinea pig or a lab rat um but but let, let's let's talk a little bit let's dive in on this sort of you know individual and societal perception of clinical trials and and what we can do to uh, kind of turn that around and create a more positive perception around trials
4: Sure, and I think we should break perception down into two different parts. One is perception that happens because people actually become aware of trials and then sort of their perception or attitude about the trial once they've become aware of it because we really have significant barriers on both fronts, and I think the reasons that their barriers are different. With respect to just making sure that that patients learn about trials that are available to them, one of the biggest barriers is simply a matter of time. Um, Anyone who's gone through a cancer diagnosis knows that the time of diagnosis is often an incredibly hectic and overwhelming time, and it's difficult to make room for anything that isn't felt to be non-essential. There are, you know, treatment plans that have to be made. Sometimes there are, you know, there's a need to schedule surgery and follow up imaging, et cetera, and I think both the patients and, frankly, the healthcare system are trying to do that in a very limited amount of time, and we have a barrier related to, you know, how do you create the time and space? in those clinical encounters to introduce the idea of a clinical trial and then have the conversations necessary to make sure that the patient is informed well enough to give consent to be a part of the trial. It's simply just not a standard part of the workflow around that initial time of diagnosis. And there are likely some ways that we can change that by introducing the prompting the healthcare provider to have that conversation by putting it into uh, the workflow that may happen within the electronic medical record. It may happen by having an agent, and this is the case in many cancer centers, having a navigator or um, a healthcare provider who's specifically tasked with talking with uh, patients about clinical trials, so that it's not something that has to be added on to an you know already existing workload for a provider. But there's a provider whose task is to simply have those kinds of conversations because we just have to make it, we have to prioritize it. We have to make time and space to have those conversations during a time that is often very jam-packed and overwhelming. Uh, there's a survey that the National Cancer Institute conducts called the Health Information National Trend Survey. And in 2014, there was a question on the survey about if you've ever um, been told about a clinical trial as part of your treatment for cancer for respondents to the survey who have a history of cancer. And only 10% of the cancer survivors in the survey in 2014 said yes, they'd been told about a clinical trial as a treatment option. Now, there are two things to note there. One is that we do know that the introduction of trials Into treatment doesn't happen as often as we'd like it to. But I would strongly suspect that that 10% is also a function of the degree to which people remember that happening. Because during a time when you're emotionally overwhelmed and needing to be making a lot of decisions and the kinds of decisions that you've maybe never made before related to healthcare, it's just simply very overwhelming to remember every single thing that you were told about, much less something like a clinical trial, which we also know from the same time period in 2014, roughly 25%. of Americans who responded to this survey said they'd never even heard of a clinical trial. But once we can overcome the barrier of awareness, that's where we then need to begin to tackle barriers related to misperceptions and myths about trials. And again, I think this is in part a matter of time and information provision. So how do we make sure that we go into those conversations either Feeling, uh, you know, acknowledging that a clinical trial may be a very foreign idea for that individual, or if they do have an idea about a clinical trial, perhaps those ideas are misinformed. So needing to be very deliberate about communicating in specific and clear ways with people about what it would mean to be a part of this trial What are the things that could happen to you as a part of this trial? What the benefits are? What the risks are? You know, that's what informed consent is about. But, again, those things take time. And, you know, I will say that, and this is probably true for many of the folks who are listening to your show and also for, for Brad, when someone who is in my life, a friend or a family member, is diagnosed with cancer, this, and I, I'm often contacted because they know that I know a few things about, about this field, the first yeah. thing I always offer to do is to look for clinical trials that might be applicable mm-hmm. to them because mm-hmm. I know that that might not be something that's on their radar, that it's an important thing, and that they may not have the time, space, or wherewithal to do that at that critical moment. But I just yeah. simply think we have to prioritize it and make time for it.
2: Yeah, that's great
4: information, great information.
2: Um, Dr. Hesse, about a year ago, and it was big uh, you know, big news, the White House announced the Cancer Moonshot Initiative to double the progress towards a cure for cancer, essentially achieve 10 years of progress in five years' time. Talk to our listeners about what role cancer clinical trials will play in ensuring the Cancer Moonshot's success.
3: Wonderful. And I have to say that the uh, Moonshot is still good news Uh, As a result of passing the 21st Century CARES Act in the late part of December, Mm -hmm. uh, the Bo Biden Act was included in part of that, and that's where much of the impetus for the uh, moonshot activities will be taking uh, taking place and funded. Uh, One of the first actions that followed up from the vice president taking on this task was a group of people came together in a blue-ribbon panel to come up with a series of recommendations on what we needed to do to accelerate, get done in five years, what would take Ten otherwise. And they began with clinical trials. They said we have to improve the dismal state of clinical trial uh, accrual and we have to improve the way that we analyze data from these trials so we can get greater efficiencies. And so it became kind of the leading force for all of this. From that came a series of recommendations. There were 10 recommendations. But the very first one, again, leading off the list, was to form uh, a network for, pa- for direct patient engagement. Now, this is interesting because it changes the paradigm very much in line with the way that Ellen and others have been talking about this, and you've been talking about this so far. It's uh, We recognize that it's difficult to shove a single conversation late in the game in a cancer patient's treatment to say there's a clinical trial available. Mm-hmm. What the patient network is going to do, it's going to recruit people early on, well before they would even be eligible for a clinical trial. It would record molecular information about their tumor put that into a registry, and pre-register them for clinical trials that pop up related to their tumor's characteristics at the time possible. And the point here is that we're going to make a platform where patients who tell us they do want to get engaged more generally in research because they have that sense of community and altruism get an Mm -hmm. opportunity to do that early on in the process.
2: So is there anything our our listeners can do at home to ensure the success of the the Cancer Moonshot Initiative?
3: The, there are three obstacles to the uh, initiative kind of unfolding and working well as I see it. Uh, one, and the most important one, is that we somehow as a nation lose our will to make this happen and to pick up the mantle and run with it and accept it and push it. And this is a place where we're just being very active and advocating for this emphasis on uh, what we can do to accelerate now Uh, treatment in cancer, all listeners can be involved in that and should be involved in that and bring that up and through word of mouth. Another is to, uh, in a place where we might uh, uh, run into problems, is if we uh, fail to share data, uh, and that starts with the patient. So when a doctor has a conversation about getting involved in research, uh, if if, uh, if, if your listeners can, uh, first off, engage in that conversation and learn more about it as a process, and say, yes, here's what I am willing to share. I need protections, but I'm willing to share that. That's going to help accelerate this process as well.
2: Great. Great advice. Uh, Dr. Bechtra, we've got a couple minutes until our next break here, but um, one of the things we hear a lot are concerns around access to clinical trials um, we know that a lot of trials are happening in the big academic centers um, fewer trials available in, in community oncology settings where most pa- cancer patients are treated we also hear things from patients about look you know may- maybe the maybe my insurance company is going to cover the cost of the trial but who's going to cover the cost of my daycare my transportation if I don't go to work I don't get paid some of these other sort of social and and, and emotional and practical barriers that that, uh, that that patients face what are we trying to do do to overcome some of
4: these access challenges? Sure, which are very important. I would say that the NIH website clinicaltrials.gov is a great place to start because it gives the um, patient the opportunity to search for trials all over the country, which you know then takes away the barrier of possibly only being exposed to ones that are happening at their cancer care setting that doesn't address the problem of, let's say you find a trial, but it's, you know, 100 miles away and you'd like to participate in it. Then there are other sorts of supports, like I think of the Patient Advocate Foundation or the Strong Foundation that have services and supports in place to help people deal with those practical concerns associated with the cancer diagnosis to help overcome some of those barriers to participation. But they're very real barriers, and it's important for Patients to seek out and ask for and advocate for themselves to get help to overcome them.
2: Yeah, and I know we certainly hope that that um, part of the um, moonshot will be to address uh, greater availability of clinical trials in the community setting and in more communities um, uh, around the country because you know we talk about oh the trials 50 miles away 100 miles away a lot of times these trials are a plane ride away which certainly has a lot of real practical and financial uh, ramifications for uh, for patients who are who are seeking out uh, a trial uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer we're talking today about cancer clinical trials we're talking about some of the uh, what trials are we've, we've covered that what some of the challenges are the access uh, barriers and really what uh, what needs to happen as it relates to clinical trials if we to uh, really accelerate towards better treatments, if we were to accelerate towards a cure. We've got more to talk about here. We're going to take a quick break. Please don't go away. We'll be right back.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
6: Cancer, it's a lonely word, terms I don't understand,
1: a global
5: network of education and hope.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
2: We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today's show has been sponsored in part by Lilly Oncology and Insight Corporation. We're closing out our show Really, talking more about the need to increase clinical trial enrollment. We're with Dr. Ellen Beck Jordan, Dr. Bradford Hesse. Um, I- you know, as we get towards the end of the, the show and the, and the end of the conversation, you guys are kind of in the thick of this work and, in, you know, in the thick of this conversation. Uh, I really want to ask, you know, each of you what you sort of expect to see and what you hope to see in the cancer clinical trial environment over the next five years. Dr. Bechtra, I'll start with you. Really, what, what do you think we're going to see? And, and, you know, what's the what's the stretch goal? What do you hope we're going to see?
4: I hope that we'll see progress towards um, the, you know, increased participation in trials and increased data sharing across organizations that are conducting trials so that we can really take two separate and related approaches to expediting the degree to which we can grow the evidence we need to make substantial progress towards, um, towards advancing treatment and achieving cure for as many cancers as possible.
2: Yeah. Dr. Hesse, how about you?
3: You know, I'm hoping that in the next five years, We see a a change in the way that people think about clinical trials, recognize what a partnership opportunity this is, and how we can contribute information to the research enterprise early in the process. So destroy some of these myths that we're talking about as we have a national conversation about exactly how important that is. And then if we do that, I think just like we've seen in a lot of other areas of this economy, uh, certain things start taking off dramatically, and I think that's going to see... Now an escalation of people wanting to get involved and clamoring to get involved in clinical trials.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, Dr. and I just I want to talk a little bit about just for a minute about the importance of sort of social and emotional support and other interventions and in, in trial participation. You know, at the cancer support community, we did a we did a study. We we uh, studied an intervention to help patients with. With uh, treatment decision-making. And we sort of did some myth-busting around clinical trials in each of those counseling sessions. And as a result, once patients really were educated and took a moment to understand uh, what clinical trials really were, then actually we had in the study, 9% of patients enroll in a clinical trial from one 45-minute counseling session um, you know how, how and that's three times the national average, you know, just to remind our listeners but but you know what what is the importance of that of social and emotional support? You, know, you talked you talked about the doctor visit. It's so pressing, there's so much that has to be communicated, but if we could slow down for a minute um, and and maybe understand patients' concerns and what their barriers are, you know, do you think that could really make a difference in enrollment?
4: Absolutely. I think that it could make a huge difference because not only does that type of conversation help to address some of the concerns that people may have about trial participation. But um, Brad and I have, have done some research in the past showing that, you know, one of the most challenging things or one of the many challenging things about a cancer diagnosis is that there's often a lot of emotional distress and feeling pretty emotionally overwhelmed at the time of diagnosis. And it's also a time when a lot of decisions need to be made. And we know from a psychological and cognitive perspective, we are sort of least equipped to make decisions and process information when we are emotionally overwhelmed. And so I think that there's two ways those kinds of conversations can serve to advance the agenda on clinical trials. One is simply creating the time and space to have the conversation to relay what is relatively complex information to someone in a way that they can understand and digest, but also to begin to address what we know are a lot of the emotional challenges that naturally accompany a diagnosis of cancer. And by addressing those, you separately create an environment in which an individual is better equipped to hear, retain, process, and make use of critical information related to their care, not just related to clinical trials, but to their care overall.
2: Yeah, it's great to... Great input. Um, as we get to the close of the show, I just want to ask each of you, if we've got somebody listening today, maybe they've just been diagnosed with cancer, maybe they've heard about clinical trials, maybe they haven't, you know, really what, what advice, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Hesse, what advice, what tips do you have for somebody who's just been diagnosed as it relates to 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 a clinical trial? What questions should they be asking? What steps should they be taking um, as they sort of navigate a diagnosis of cancer?
3: You know, i there is a good colleague of ours, Jesse Grumman, who one time said she, that when she was diagnosed with cancer, she became uh, inadvertently activated. She said that was mm-hmm. the most engaging time of her life. She had no choice but to just dig in and figure out what was going on. And I think as as patients do that, as they try to make sense of what this new world is that they're entering. To include, uh, a, a search for clinical trials. You know, Ellen was kind of alluding to that earlier on, that that's one of the first things she does as a support when someone calls her. They just think about these trials. Uh, so I would, I would recognize first that that's, um, that's a, it's a natural phase to have questions, uh, have doubts, have some insecurities about what this means. But it's a process of understanding what it can do for you in a, in a treatment setting. Uh, and the advantages it can provide, not just for you, but for others in the community at large, and then uh, have more conversations with people just to make sense of all of this.
2: Yeah, great advice, Dr. Hesse. Dr. Bechter, what, what would you like to add?
4: I'd like to pick up on the last point that Brad made, and I agree with what he just said, but I think that it's about enlisting as many people as you can To help you gather and process information as it relates Mm -hmm. to clinical trials, but just to cancer generally. You know, most people hopefully have not been diagnosed with cancer before when they receive a diagnosis, and you know, few of us are experts in, in going on that journey, though. People like Jesse Grumman, who, who Brad mentioned, you know, who, who had been diagnosed with cancer multiple times, developed that kind of expertise, even if it's not expertise that they wanted. But for most of us, it's a very unfamiliar journey. And so I would encourage people diagnosed with cancers to recognize that no question that they have is a bad question to ask. Ask every question you have, force the conversation to slow down to a pace, that you find acceptable, force the whole process to slow down until you feel like you have the information you need to make what are very critical decisions, enlist the help of friends, family, and other cancer survivors. If you can connect with them, they may be people you already know or the place where you're receiving treatment likely has a network of individuals who've been treated previously that are willing to provide peer support. Other survivors always have the best advice for newly diagnosed uh, patients, in my experience. So, connect with those people, bring a note taker to your appointments, record what is said at the appointments on your smartphone if you have one. Just document, gather information, and then recognize that it is absolutely appropriate to give yourself the time and space to process that information, even when it feels like decisions have to be made quickly. Never be afraid to say I need things to slow down, and I need more information before I can make a decision.
2: Great, great advice, Dr. Beckjord. I, I want to thank both of you uh, for joining the show today, Dr. Beckjord and Dr. Hesse. It's been uh, it's been a great conversation. We've covered uh, a lot of ground. Obviously, more to more to cover and more to share, which is why we're making this uh, uh, this particular topic a series. Uh, on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're gonna be doing uh, uh, several shows on cancer clinical trials and the importance of awareness and education and the importance of accelerating enrollment uh, in cancer clinical trials. Uh, you, you both mentioned Jesse Grumman who was also a friend of, of ours and a friend of our organization and I think it might be fitting to uh, dedicate the show today to uh, to Jesse Grumman and she was a great uh, advocate and, and a, a great friend and just a terrific uh, human being and we all learned a great deal from Jesse. so we would like to uh, do that and dedicate the show to Jesse today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, I'm your host Kim Thiboldo from the Cancer Support Community. I also want to let our listeners 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 know that we have a new uh, educational program about clinical trials, frankly speaking about cancer clinical trials. There are a host of resources at our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org slash clinical trials. Again, that's www.cancersupportcommunity.org slash clinical trials. And check out our website and uh, call us on our helpline that number is 888-793-9355. You can speak to one of our counselors uh, uh, any day any day of the week. Give us a call at 888-793-9355. We want all of our listeners today to know that you do not have to face cancer alone. I'm Kim Baldo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.